Hey listeners, today's episode includes topics of discrimination against LGBTQ people as well as self-harm and suicide. If you or someone you know is in crisis or thinking about suicide, please know that there are several resources available 24-7 in the United States. The National Suicide Lifeline can be reached at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-TALK. The Trevor Project is the leading national organization providing crisis intervention and suicide prevention services to LGBTQ young people and can be reached at 1-866-488-7386. Again, that's 1-866-488-7386, or you can access support via chat at www.thetrevorproject.org. Finally, the Crisis Text Line serves anyone in any type of crisis, providing access to free 24-7 support via a medium people already use and trust, text. Simply send a text to 741-741. Thanks for listening. In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. Yay, here we are. (laughs) It's episode three. It's episode, wow, it's episode three already. I know. I just said it. I feel like this is all sort of, (laughs) I know, I'm just reflecting. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm like, I feel like it's, it hasn't been that long since we started doing this. I feel like we've really, uh, we've, we're really making some headway here. Yeah. We're getting through mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. This is Ripped from the Headlines, which is the fact and fiction podcast that looks at law and order episodes and the true crimes that inspired the show. Exactly. And since this is episode three of our of our podcast, it is also going to be focusing on episode three of season one yeah. of Law and Order. Yes. It's going to be real easy to follow uh, for the for, for you uh, listeners out there. I was just going to say, I wonder if we'll ever get to a point where something weird happens and we're out of sync with the episodes. I'm, I'm sure inevitably. I think the only way that could possibly happen is if um, episodes are ever just too hard to to find... Or, I don't know, maybe there's like a controversial episode that's oh. been removed or something. You know, I don't know. Yeah, or like there's no relevant crime or something, or it's a really terrible episode or something. Yeah, but you know what? If we find an episode that just doesn't have a relevant crime, we'll just pick a crime, I feel like. Okay. Right? I'm get, I'm good with that. Yeah, something that's similar. Yeah, we'll pick something. Yeah, we'll pick something in the same world, or we'll... Uh, We'll see how they addressed the crime on the show, and if they address it in a really inappropriate way or a way that we feel was like misrepresenting whatever community um, is at play, we'll do a we'll represent a, a crime from the actual community in, in a better way. Or we could just take a sharp left turn and just read a bedtime story. Ooh, we could do that, or we could just like watch a movie um, and <laughs> not play it for like the the listeners, but they'll just hear our. Our commentary. Exactly. It'll be like Mystery Science Theater 3000. Oh my God. But without them being able to see the movie. (laughs) Right. So you won't be able to see us. You won't be able to see the movie. You'll just hear our commentary of the movie. Oh my God. And it'll be like a mystery podcast because you'll have to guess which movie we're watching. We won't tell you. You'll have to figure it out from the commentary. Yes. That is so full circle. We just, okay, copyright that. If this makes it to the episode, don't copy me. Missy Elliott. Yeah. So that's Matt. I'm N. And welcome to episode three. You made it this far. 
You made it this far, and we made it this far. And listen, in the world we're living in today, I think we have to celebrate the small victories. That's right. You yeah. have to you have to really cheer yourself on when you do those little things. Yes, you have to take them where they are. That's right. Do a herky. <laughs> I c- if I could do a herky, I would do a herky right now. Um, <laughs> don't you need somebody to throw you in the air to do a herky? Oh, you know what? Okay, so I know only what herkies are from listening to My Favorite Murder and them having discussed herkies, I feel like multiple times, surprisingly. But I only know that it's a cheerleading move. I don't, and I know it involves airtime. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's so funny because I thought, I feel like I learned it from Bring It On. Oh, I, okay. I've never seen Bring It On and don't be mad. <gasps> I know. Matt also up until maybe a month ago, I guess a month and a half because it was my birthday, um, had never seen Clueless. And so finally on my birthday, I sat down and made him watch Clueless. And I, I mean, it, just to let everybody know before anyone listening loses their minds at me, it's not because I didn't want to see Clueless or I had no interest. It's just, it just passed me up at the time I, somehow. I mean, I was younger and, you know, not for whatever reason, it passed me up at the time. And for whatever reason, I've not been able to, it just, it just got released on Netflix. It just got released like a month or so ago. Yes. Like a, a like a week before my birthday, it came out. Right. And it wasn't resistance. It was just, I just, you know, I like to watch a lot of things. Just I'm very glad we watched foolishness. it. Foolishness. Foolishness. Yeah. That's what it was. Foolishness. So should we get into it? Yeah. Speaking of foolishness, it's my, my, my part first. So that's perfect. <laughs> so for those of you who are listening for the first time or who are just getting familiar with our show, we are going to be recapping both the episode of Law and Order. Um, this will be episode three of season one, as I said. And then whichever one of us did not take lead on that will be presenting you with the true crime that inspired it. So today I'll be going over the episode and um, following that you'll hear N tell you which headlines this, uh, <laughs> this episode was ripped from. Yes. And Matt has not research the crime so that's half the fun is one of us gets to research the crime and then tell the other person all about it and they've only seen the law and order episode exactly and based on this um episode i i don't know what the particular crime is because i can only think of like one broad person that this could be about but i mean they're so famous and i actually don't know that much about them so we'll see should we just jump right in Let's uh, jump. Let's do a herky right into uh, <laughs> right Let's into herky this. our way through this. <laughs> okay, so season one, episode three is titled "The Reaper's Helper." Um, I don't kind know if like, this is um, a play on words, but kind of like mommy's little helper. May- oh, yeah, yeah. Actually, isn't that a nickname for like Valium? <laughs> no. <laughs> if it's not, it I'm should pretty- be. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that it was like a nickname for Valium or something in in the 50s when uh, housewives were like, fuck this place. Yes, it is. It's a nickname for Valium. Mommy's little helper. Mommy's little helper. It'll get you through the day. I will argue that considering the amount of um, parents that are unexpectedly having to become teachers and homeschoolers and all this stuff, I would argue that this... uh, this slang term may come back. Quite possibly. Yeah, if I it mean, hasn't already. You know, I'm not on the mommy no. blogs out there, so maybe. 
You're not? I thought not you were anymore. like a contributing I was editor. Off. <laughs> I was kicked off and blocked. But, you know, maybe maybe if this uh, podcast reaches uh, reaches the masses one day, they'll they'll invite me back into the mommy blog so I can reject them. I could really see that happening. I know, right? Yeah. That's the motivation to get this podcast out there for me. Really, it's it's just a, a return for Matt to the world of mommy blogs. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, but speaking of uh, mommy blogs, we've got the Reaper's Helper. And the episode opens with... Uh, detectives Logan and Grevy following a cop up an apartment building's stairwell, and they're responding to a neighbor's complaint about this foul smell. And I think we can all see where this is going. So never follow the smell. Never. You're going towards a foul smell. Why? Did there was there was one time where my grandma used to keep grease in a old peanuts can, like bacon grease oh, or whatever. Right. Yeah. You know, that's such a grandma thing to do. And then. She, like, for some reason, like, cleaned her countertops and, like, moved the the peanut can full of bacon grease, like, into a cupboard. And then suddenly there was just, like, a few weeks later, she clearly never brought it back out. And it just kind of, like, got shoved behind other stuff. And a few weeks later, it w- there was just this overwhelming stench that, like, you could not find where it was coming from in the kitchen because it, like, permeated so strongly. And finally we discovered this, like rancid can of bacon grease in a peanuts can god and so it was and it was the most foul thing i think i've ever smelled and i I cannot imagine what a decomposing body smells like i can't be good absolutely don't want to imagine i don't want to imagine it did you find the do you remember if you found the peanut can because you were you were in the cabinet and you were like oh that smells weird or was it you really wanted peanuts one day (laughs) And you opened oh, it up God. and we're about to like dig in. <laughs> Here's the worst part of it. We, uh, we weren't, I wasn't looking for peanuts. We were looking actively for the smell. And when you opened, it's like those movies where like they open something and just like waves, like wiggly lines of stench come out. <laughs> right. Or like. Uh, and, and it just lingered. It just like hung in the air like a stink cloud of yeah, bacon grease. Or like a, a green uh, line of smoke that takes the form of a finger. <laughs> yes. Tickling just, your nose. Tickling your nose and then it just goes up into your nose. Yep. Yeah. 100%. Okay. So that's what they're doing. They're following that foul smell. And uh, as they're going up the jo- up the stairs, Logan makes a body shaming joke at Grevy, and Grevy wants his coffee. You know, just cop stuff, just yep. casual. And the apartment they're entering is a complete disaster zone, like totally turned upside down. Marie Kondo would be like, "I love this place." <laughs> she would just be there <laughs> for a, days. She's excited because she loves I mess. Love mess. And it's totally overturned. And if you ask me, it's it's very overkill. Like that's the vibe you get from watching it. And so you you know they had the entire crew like go in there and they were like, okay, throw stuff around. Like that was a fun day on set because they got to oh, just throw papers around totally. and kick over stools. Especially that was a fun day. since this was first season. So they had no expectations yet of like what their job was gonna look like and how the show was gonna go. So it's like, no. hey, listen, this is your job, guys. You get to throw stuff around. <laughs> I love those sorts of things from, like, the the production details from early episodes of shows. Like, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, they had such a little uh, budget when they first started that they had to film in actual graveyards. Oh, that's awesome. Isn't that fun? Yeah, that's awesome. I would have loved that. I would have, why change it? Why change that? You know? I know. Well, unless you, know, you can, well, yeah. Well, probably because they don't want people like doing backflips and other stunt moves off of grave. <laughs> like, right. And on graves. top of dead bodies. I guess <laughs> yeah. it's a little disrespectful. <laughs> 
Okay, well, yeah. all right, you know, I, I I guess I forgive a lot for Buffy, so I, I, lost, I lost myself there for a moment. You still Going haven't back. watched the final season, have you? No, I, I kind of want to, I know this is like start a big o- yeah, undertaking. Yeah, yeah. Start over, start over. Yeah, so we restarted, we actually started Buffy over, me and my partner Davey, um, months and months and months and months ago. I would say like a good six to eight months ago, we were like, oh, look, Buffy's on here, so we should we should start it over and... Blah, blah, blah. And we restarted it. We watched like the first four episodes. And I think just just too much to watch. And it just seems such a massive overtaking that undertaking what overtaking undertaking. It seemed like a massive endeavor. And so we're like, you know, this is something that we can work on throughout our relationship. And we just haven't picked back up. So I I really think I need to just get back (laughs) into the beginning of it again and restart it again. (laughs) I like the way you phrase that. This is something we have to work on in our relationship. Getting through Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I mean, I think if that's what we have to work on, we're in a good place. Well, 100%. And if you had a partner who didn't want to work on Buffy the Vampire Slayer with you, time to find a new partner. Instantaneously. All right. So they're in the apartment. We haven't even gotten to the opening credits yet. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So they they enter the the next room of the apartment and... um, the, there's a man's body laying face down in blood. Um, the victim's name is Bobby Holland, and they ponder about whether this was like a drug deal gone wrong or a robbery um, because of the state of the apartment. But within the eyeline of uh, Detective Grevy, feet away from the victim is a full wallet. So I would say something doesn't make sense. Oh, my God. You get it? I sure do. Thanks. Um, I'd also like to point out from something from that you mentioned in the last episode that is echoed here or copied here. Grevy is taking a page out of Logan's book from last week, and he's moving oh evidence God. around with a pen on an active crime yes, scene. Yes, that's their favorite thing to do is just stick pens in evidence. Right. So either this is currently the practice or someone just told them this is what you do. And they're just, you know, this is what cops do. Move stuff around with a pen. It's not your finger. It's fine. This show came out in 1990, and DNA evidence was kind of a thing in the mid 80s, yeah. mid to late 80s, right? That's like kind of when it started to be a thing. I yeah, I w- that's what I think. Yeah, I mean, I don't remember. So they were probably but... like just barely knowing the science of things like that. I guess so. We'll see. We'll, hopefully, it doesn't continue into like the third season, but TBD. <laughs> so then we uh, the credits roll, and afterwards. They exit to um, the hallway of the apartment of the active crime scene that's not at all secured, it seems. And they run into two nosy neighbors in the hallway. Um, the old man in the scene absolutely has to be the inspiration for um, Arnold's grandfather in Hey Arnold, <laughs> right down to the setting that they're on. He is like l- literally him. Um, yeah. They gossip about how the victim stayed out most hours of the day and night and listened to, quote, sad music, piano stuff, Gershwin. They also. God forbid. <laughs> right? So he's just listening to like, you know, the Mr. Holland's Opus soundtrack in his in his apartment all day. Also, I feel like that's like last night and the night before I went on a full like Tori Amos binge Ooh. and just like played video games and listened to Tori Amos on repeat for hours and hours and hours the last couple of days. So I feel like the neighbors could say that about me if I were playing that loudly enough. They'd be like, is are they replaying that Tori Amos song again? Exactly. I feel like our neighbors must know our our sort of state of mind by the music they hear playing from our from our house Absolutely. for sure. Yes. So uh, they also ask them if they notice anything unusual on Saturday night, which is the night in question. And they say that they saw a man running down the steps at 1.30 a.m. And so suspicious, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. 
now they're at the lab. Um, they've had no luck with any prints. There's too many prints all over everything. And Grievy and Logan are flanking an actor who, if I hope you agree with this, he decided for his role today, he's going to be Jerry Seinfeld in a lab coat. He <laughs> literally looks and carries himself like Jerry Seinfeld completely. And I did not look very purposeful. And then he said, I have to go back. My favorite quote from this guy was live fast, die young, leave a beautiful corpse. Yes. <sighs> I remember that line. I can't. So they're walking him. To, he's walking them down the hallway and he, um, he's doing his high concept Jerry Seinfeld character. And <laughs> He tells them that there were no defensive wounds on this man, just a 38 entrance wound and no gunpowder residue. And that man was shot from about a foot away. Next, we're at the home of the victim's parents in Brooklyn. And it's a pretty somber scene in the living room as the mom is speaking of her late son. Uh, there's a like a picture on the on the countertop that looks like it was dipped in tea. Like it looks like it's from a yearbook. I, I, mm, was that like a mm-hmm. thing? People just like, Instead of taking pictures of their actual family members, they just cut pictures out of yearbooks and put them in frames. It's very strange. <laughs> I mean, they it was the third episode. They were probably working on a shoestring budget. I guess so. <laughs> so she says that he she always felt he was safe because he was strong. He was he was like a larger guy, and he kept to himself and was kind of a loner. And they ask if he has any siblings, and she very melodramatically turns away and stammers over how hard her pregnancy was and birth and no, no more children. It's a very, very, very melodramatic scene. And as you've mentioned previously, the extras in this show so far are really giving it their absolute all. They're really trying. There are big choices being made. Huge, huge. I mean, already we have uh, Harold's grandfather, we got Jerry Seinfeld, and now we got this woman who is like straight out of a um, social anxiety commercial. Like, <laughs> it's it's nuts. So, yeah. I mean, I guess she lost her. You know, she's lost her son, but it, it's it's a it's a choice. You'll watch it and see. Um, yeah. After all, after all the trouble she had with the pregnancy, now they lost him. She's she's talking about, and then the stoic father in the room says, "We lost him when he moved over the bridge." Um, the father, Anthony Holland, comes back to the station to collect the uh, victim's personal effects, and he notices his son's Omega Steel watch is missing. Um, he knows he, wa- he wore it every day. It was a graduation present. And so uh, while he's here, he also lets loose that he had bought his son a gun for protection, and everyone in the room suddenly, like, drops their pen, and there's, like, a sc- <laughs> they, Like, What? <laughs> If if anyone had been like taking a sip of a beverage, it would have been a like Jerry a Lewis spit take, hundred percent. Yeah. Um, the description of the gun matches the description of the entry wound they got at the hospital, and you know he, the father, th- the police officers are again like blaming the victim, like or not the police officers. I'm sorry, the father of the victim is blaming his son. He's like, why didn't he defend himself? It's a little problematic, right. but I yeah, guess hundred percent. So they're bouncing around ideas with, uh, so the detectives are now bouncing around ideas with Captain Cragen um, and eliminating possibilities. There's no defensive wounds. There's no fire escape. No known enemies of this guy. He was a big guy. He had a gun in the house. So what happened? Cragen, for the second time this season, and we're in episode three, remember, suggests they find out who he knew. (laughs) I'm not an expert, but isn't that like, in layman's terms, the definition of what detective work is? Yeah, you always start with the circle of people closest to the victim. Right. It seems like they always go to Captain Cragen, like, at this point, and they're like, what do we do now? And he's like, hit the streets. Uh, I, you know. 
So they, they speak to his boss at work. They speak to the victim's boss at his uh, job, which is a construction site along the river. And he answers every question in an incredibly annoying way. He can't just say no or yes. Um, so, for instance, did he have lady problems? And he goes, he didn't cat around. Was he a gambler? Not even a football pool. It's like, just... <laughs> Just say Get out yes of here. Or no. So he suggests asking one of the. It's uh, like, everything is like an idiom. Well, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. <laughs> what, what does that even mean? I've never understood that one. And I've never tried because I just don't like it. Yeah. I, I can't. So he's doing all this, you know, dancing around it and says, go ask that guy over there. They used to have lunch together. It's a, probably a friend of his. So they go over to one of his coworkers whose name is uh, Angel Suarez. And I don't want to spoil the reveal here, but it's pretty clear instantly to the viewer where we're going with this. A thousand percent. The minute I saw Angel Suarez in this episode, I was like, oh, I know exactly what's about to happen. Yep, 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 instantly. Because, uh, spoiler alert, Angel Suarez literally looks like a drawing from Atama Finland cartoon exactly 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 he could be on he could be a village person like a like one of the village people absolutely not a person from a village yeah <laughs> he'd be the dock worker village person because, yeah exactly it's it's so yeah. i feel like his chest hair stuck out further than like oh like it was the furthest point on he had so much chest hair right he? was that visible or am i just imagining no no no. It? he had chest hair and it was like it wasn't necessarily sticking out more but like you could tell that the he is not dressed like an actual construction worker. He is dressed like a costume of a construction worker. That's absolutely true. You know, so that's what it is. You know, it's it's the lower cut. You know, we, we're getting it all. So Angel Suarez says he knew him, um, but he was in San Juan until Sunday night visiting his parents. On the night of the crime, he was having... He does know that on the night of the crime that... Uh, oh, my God, I forgot his name. Bobby? Bobby, right? Bobby. Mm-hmm. He does know that on the night of the crime in question that Bobby was having a meal with a friend of his uh, who owns a gourmet sandwich cart. And all I could think of was like, oh, I would love a gourmet sandwich. I <laughs> eat all my sandwiches as if, as if they are gourmet, to be honest. You know, I don't understand what it is. I feel like I can buy all the right ingredients and make a sandwich at home. And it's never as good as when you go get a sandwich from a really good deli or something. Uh, you know, maybe you're just not making the right kind of sandwiches. Maybe I'm just not, like, putting, like, I feel like sandwiches at delis are often, like, they, like, literally dip it in a jar of, like, mayonnaise-y, pesto-y something or other. Maybe I'm just not putting enough of that on. And, you know, they're, like, cutting the meat fresh, and, you know, you've had it in your fridge for a while. True. I don't know. But anyway, I think I encourage everyone to eat all their sandwiches in, as if they're gourmet, in, including you. Even even the ones you make. E- even me. Don't okay, sell thank you. <laughs> Don't sell my sandwiches short. <laughs> Don't sell your sandwich making skills short. And <laughs> or yourself. Or yourself. So anyway, speaking of the sandwiches, they go over to the Upper West Side and Lois Rivera, who runs that sandwich cart, tells them that she has encouraged Bobby to go back to, the, to City College because he was smart. He loved books and music. And um, that all they did was have a quick drink and then he left. Um, also, can we talk about the fact that supposedly she is Bobby's best friend and she's just like, here's your sandwich. Like, yeah. stop bothering. Like, wouldn't you think she'd be crying or like show some emotion? Right. Especially since it's been a like a day and a half. 
right? That is an actor who chose not to make big choices and should have made bigger ones. Yeah, a little too subtle, Lois Rivera. Just saying. Yeah. But hey, so after they had had a quick drink, he had left and they wanted to know like where where he would have gone. Is there anyone that would have wanted to hurt him? And she kind of hesitates and then says no. And then they ask her, you know, where did he go afterwards? And her reaction is like silent. Like she doesn't want to say. And so Logan gets closer <laughs> and calmly says, somebody blew your boyfriend's brains out. Which is, uh, oh God. <sighs> so I'm not things. sure like what we're going for here, but <laughs> she tells them he went to a bar called Paradise Lost um, and that they weren't dating because <gasps> Bobby was gay. Shock. Dun, dun, dun. I'm sure in 1990 that was like a pretty revolutionary sure. storyline. I'm sure. I'm sure. But I, I also think it's a. I'll get into that later. So the second I saw the guy, like I said, the second I saw the guy at the docks earlier, I said, it, this is like how construction gay workers dress in adult movies, not in, in yes. real life. So yes. it was pretty clear. He just needed some saxophone background music, uh, especially at that time, you know? Probably could. <laughs> Let me stop. <laughs> so they decide they're going to go to this bar and see see what you know what's going on so they go to the bar and the bartender says that bobby was there with a guy that stood out from the like sort of blue collar crew that normally visited the bar and he had that sort of i'm cool and you're not look with his silk jacket and the bartender randomly lights up a cigarette and delivers the line i thought he was a hustler something about him i don't know I don't know. Maybe it was the silk jacket. Yeah. And I just think, A, you're just lighting up a cigarette behind the bar. Just nothing. And B, another actor who's just hamming it up to the extreme. So Logan says, so it was the rough trade in the car. Which, I'm sorry, Logan, do you know the, how does he know those words? Right. And is that really, is that really what you're getting from this? Right, and Law and & Order must have had, like, a gay intern who, like, told them that phrase. Yeah. The, like, in the writer's room. And they were like, ooh, this is the kind of thing people are going to have to look up on AOL to figure out what it means. Yeah. Um, Key, well, keyword rough trade. Rough trade, and then they get to a website that gives them a virus. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they suppose it was maybe, like, a hookup gone wrong and that Mr. Silk Jacket uh, went home with them, they slept together, and that he was killed and robbed. Maybe not in that order, but... So back at the station, they mention how no one knew that this guy was gay, and Grievy asks Logan if he thinks any NYPD might be. And Logan makes a ridiculous offensive joke, winks at Grievy like they're at recess in second grade, and then says, one in ten, that's a lot. They just fade in. Also, didn't he make some comment about, like, there's a psych test that screens them out or something? I Oh, I don't know. I, I mean, maybe I wrote after this that uh, I'm going to leave that one alone because I have a feeling if I stop it every time I get triggered by something that's offensive, I this will be a mini series this episode. Oh, yeah. As a as a queer person, in case anyone hasn't picked up on this, figured it out. I'm very, very gay. <laughs> Cragen comes in after this delightful exchange and he has got good and bad news. They found the gun, but it's wiped clean and it's registered to Bobby. Yeah. So, you know, we're back at his parents' house, and Bobby's mother is um, clutching what looks to be like that yearbook photo earlier, saying he was popular with girls, he hid playboys, and she scoffs at the mere suggestion that he was a homosexual. But outside, the father reveals that she knows, but she just can't admit it. And how does he feel about it? He goes on this tangent about how Bobby had everything going for him, and then he moved to the city and blended in with everybody else. 
So they ask if he had any boyfriends, and he just says, want to rub my nose in it? So they end up leaving him, and they go back to speak to Angel again. And Angel is tentative to talk because he's closeted at work, and he wants to keep it that way. Um, And Bobby had been seeing this Jack fellow from the gym after the two of them had been seeing each other. So they've been sort of seeing each other, like, casually, and then Bobby kind of broke it off and and started seeing this guy named Jack from the gym. Mm -hmm. Back at the station, on a vague memory, Grievy has Logan helping him pour over magazines until he finds a recent article titled, Gay Murder Shocks San Francisco. What a headline. Yep. On the phone um, with law enforcement over there, which, by the way, in every other cop drama or procedural I've ever watched, getting information from other districts, let alone like other states, is like completely impossible. Mm-hmm. But completely here he's just, impossible. Completely. But now he's just getting details over the phone from across the country. And, yep. um, you know, they tell him that this crime that he just researched, there was a ransacked place, um, no prints, the gun was cleaned and abandoned. And then there was an identical case the next week in L.A. So he asked them to fax over the victim's address book. Um, in real life, this would take weeks, months. But here, in, at 12 follow-up calls, emails, uh, attitude. But here, you know, no problem. Logan, however, has less luck with the LAPD. Um, he's being a total animal on the phone anyway and ends with, hey, fax you. <laughs> I thought I liked Logan a lot better. He is just very unlikable. I, I'm He's really shocked. unlikable. I don't know yeah. if there's an evolution with him, but let's pray because he is just a real wild, a wild one. So yeah. Cragen smooths things over on the phone from the Hey Fax You comment, and they release the documents requested, and Logan and Grievy cross-reference all the names in each of the victims' versions of address books and see one common number and name, and it seems to be to a John R. Curry. And I just think, remember address books, like physical paper address books? Oh, I sure do. I wanted one so bad as a kid because it just looked like the ultimate symbol of like adulthood, having an address yeah. book. Now, if I had an address book, I'd just have the biggest anxiety attack ever if I ever had to open it. My grandma had address books, and it was... Uh... Like you would discover like ancient ones in old drawers with like 35 names crossed out and things like that. It was so much fun. Oh, I I love finding old address books. I love it. And just seeing like the old handwriting of like your loved ones. Oh, I know. So um, they get the okay from ADA Robinette to uh, arrest the guy. And when they get to his apartment with a SWAT team in what seems like the very early afternoon, Vivaldi's Four Seasons is blasting so loud from the inside of this guy's apartment that I cannot believe they have not been evicted like that that moment. It is like down the hallway, down the steps, blasting. And it's like I thought they were going to open the door <laughs> and there would either be a live symphony or 500 phones on speakerphone with the same hold music at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> And so inside John slash Jack Curry's uh, place, he's serving a meal of some sort to a guy in the afternoon. It looks like dinner time, dinner time meal. But uh, now they're interrupted and they handcuff uh, both of them, it looks like. Yeah, yeah. They So they're handcuffed and Logan is way, 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 way rougher on the innocent bystander eating with this guy than anyone is with Curry, which I thought was a little unusual. Mm-hmm. Julia DeBakey, I think that's how it was pronounced. Um, I'm saying her name because she becomes a recurring character. I've definitely seen her on more episodes. Mm-hmm. So she's a lawyer, and she's the lawyer for the suspect, and she's already with her client, and we discover she is a famous civil rights lawyer. 
you know, she says that her client can answer questions and just know that she reserves the right to stop the interview at any time. And Grevy, Logan, and Robinette are all sitting across from them. And this is what they gather from the interview. He claims that he helped Bobby kill himself because he had AIDS and wanted a more humane and painless quick death versus wasting away slowly. Right. He didn't want his family to know about it, and he wanted it to look like a robbery. And so he's surprised to find out that they know about the two other men who are, by the way, named Dodge and Forrest. I'll just leave that information out there, and you could do with it what you will. Um, he mentions that they both also um, had AIDS and that this lawyer... And then his lawyer, like, ends the line of questioning. They ask who pulled the trigger with Bobby, and he says that he held the gun and Bobby wrapped his fingers around his and said he wanted to die. And they're going to call it mercy killing. Robinette takes the info back to the EADA Stone, along with confirmation that all three victims had AIDS, but that doesn't explain the guy's motivations. Like, why is he doing this? Even if this is all true, what is your stake in this game, you know? Right. So EADA Stone is now talking to Bobby's father in another scene who says he hated the way he was and lived his life, but AIDS is a horrible way to die, and that Curry, the man who killed his son, shouldn't go to jail, which is pretty jarring and shocking to hear from the father of someone who was just killed. Yeah. Um, Bobby, he says, had asked him to actually kill him first. He had asked his father to kill him first, and I did not see that coming at all. I didn't either. Totally, like, shocked me. That's not where I thought they were going with this. Then they talk to his wife, and she regrets never getting the chance to talk about her son's sexuality, um, and she insists that they prosecute the suspect because despite what her husband revealed, she has a letter from gay men allied against AIDS that confirmed that there was an appointment to discuss treatment proving that he wanted to live. And so in the courtroom... In the next scene, we have the suspect pleading not guilty to murder in the second degree, not guilty to conspiracy in the first degree, manslaughter in the first degree, and not guilty to criminally criminally negligent homicide. So all charges he's pleading not guilty to. Uh, They also bring in the charge of promoting a suicide attempt and reckless endangerment in the second degree, and he is remanded on $50,000 bail. DA Schiff wonders this will be a gay straight issue instead of an assisted suicide issue. Um, if they go for manslaughter alone, Stone worries that it'll focus only on the hate crime aspect. I mean, they weren't called, called hate crimes yet, but they'll only be focusing on that aspect of the case, and it'll present pe- gay people as p- uh, pitiable. And he says that's one step away from ridicule. And mm. I wonder how I feel about that. I'm not really sure. There's a difference between sympathy and pity, though. Right. Yeah. That's the. That's yeah. That's a really good way to to separate it because I feel like I see what they're saying with this, mm-hmm. and I think yeah. that's an important thing to 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 bring up. Like that, you know, pity is one step away from ridicule, and I I I agree with that. But I didn't see this as pity either. You know. So yeah, I think you you got it on the nose. So he points out that there's no way to know Holland wasn't put up to this by by Curry, and while they can't change the fact that the gay straight angle will come up. He can't get past the fact that he didn't just supply the means. He pulled the trigger. Right. So we're at the offices of gay men allied against AIDS and they interview who seems to be a counselor who says that Bobby had come in and he did say he wanted to kill himself, but that when faced with the prospect of being HIV positive and the possibility of a slow, painful death, this is really not uncommon from a lot of people he speaks to. Um, he had convinced Bobby to consider going on AZT and some other treatment options. Um, he himself 
has been diagnosed with AIDS and he's living a, a fulfilling life. In the next scene in the EADA's office, he discusses plea options with Curry and his lawyer and suggests manslaughter one. And his lawyer feels this is too harsh and forces her client, who claims that he spent hours trying to talk to talk Bobby out of it to admit shooting him instead. And Stone says he didn't shoot him full of penicillin. Again, just some really grade A writing sometimes on this show. It cracks me up, though, that uh, Peter Peter Noth, yeah. that's his name, right? The actor? Oh, Christopher it, his Noth. Character, oh, Christopher Noth. His character is really not that different from Big on Sex and the City, and I think he must just, like, play a dick really well or something. I, th- I, I mean, I never saw him on Sex and the City, but if this is similar to that character, this might just be his, you know, he might be like Vince Vaughn. He just plays himself on everything he does. <laughs> Was that too, too far? We're going to get sued. We could edit no, that that's out. that's great. <laughs> He might just be like some actors who play themselves in a lot of uh, bro-y type of comedies and uh, get away with it. Yep. Yeah. So now we're back in the courtroom, and the defense questions the counselor that we spoke to at the um, at the center earlier about his experience with terminally ill AIDS patients. He is asked about counseling patients who consider suicide an option, and he says that they recommend that these patients go to England where it's legal to aid in death. I looked this up. And it's, it's not that's true. not exactly true, <laughs> but I digress. I think th- I've heard of that before, though, so I think it's a, a believed thing. Yeah. Next up, we have a gay activist on the sand, and we learn that he works at a hotline for men living with AIDS, and the topic of suicide is very frequent. And he supports their choice to end their life if the pain is too much. But when they cross-examine, the, when the prosecution cross-examines, he points out that many people live with AIDS and manage happy lives, and does he support the practice of gay men seeking suicide, motivated, motivated by shame rather than getting treatment? And he says, I support gay men taking power over their life. Damn straight. Damn straight. No pun intended, or maybe. Maybe intended. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Court adjourns for the day, and at the elevator, a man punches Stone in the face out of nowhere, calling him a gay basher. They chose an actor who looked exactly like another character in the same episode, and so when he came up and punched him, I was so confused because... I thought he was the dock worker. I am so glad you said that because I actually rewound a couple of times because I kept thinking like, who is this guy? I've seen this guy before. So yeah, totally. So he calls him a gay basher um, after punching him in the face. And he says to leave gay men alone to manage their own lives. Moments later, as Stone is icing his face in the DA's office, we discover that Curry's lawyer has released the fact that Curry has been diagnosed with AIDS. This prompts the DA's office to put pressure on the cops to dig deeper and give them a reason, quote-unquote, not to charge Curry. The only thing they come up with is Curry's prints on the back of some furniture that was turned over, which might leave some people to believe that he staged the whole crime, but it's not enough because those prints could have been there for who knows how long, and who knows how many other prints could have been on that. So Stone suggests dropping all charges besides promoting suicide, and so he cites this as the right thing to do, but neither of them seem to seem too thrilled about doing it. They don't feel good about it. Um, They're interrupted by a call. A woman in Queens killed her special needs son and said the mercy killing was inspired by this case. And now this motivates them. And we, we know that stone so far is usually motivated to do like what he believes is the right thing, the virtuous thing and following the law as, as closely as he can, despite his own beliefs. And so thinking about like what, what the case could mean for future cases, basically. Right. Which I think is really important. Important, yeah, sure. Especially, yeah. you know, you're 
this is your job. I, I wish more people thought that way. He realizes that they, they have to go forward with this case and set the correct precedent for the future. And so in the courtroom, the defense asks the bartender from Paradise Lost about Bobby's behavior, and he notes that he always had a tab for years that he'd pay off here and there, but the last time he went in, he paid it in full and then gave over like 100 bucks and said, keep the rest as tip. From that moment on, he's always paid cash, noting like a difference in his in his behavior. And the, the defense questions Mr. Holland, who now recounts how Bobby asked him to kill him, which we heard earlier, but that he couldn't he couldn't bring himself to do it. When Stone approaches the stand to cross-examine, um, he asks if if he had the gun, then why didn't Bobby just do it himself? And he said that Bobby was afraid to die. And then the camera pans to the most judgmental looking jury in the world. And Stone approaches and asks, oh wait, no, I wrote, <laughs> I wrote the camera pans to the most judgmental looking jury in the world that include a woman who looks like Kristen Wiig and Winona Ryder had a baby <laughs> and a man serving up some serious tood who is definitely family. The, yeah. the next time we see everyone in court, Curry is on the stand describing the early symptoms he's suffering. He describes a friend of his who died from AIDS, and in the last six weeks of his life, he had pneumonia and sounded he was sounded like he was drowning every day. Just so sad. Yeah, I, it sounds <sighs> oh my terrible. Gosh. Um, he hopes for a cure, but if not, he hopes he, quote, finds someone who will help him commit suicide. And when he says this, we see in the audience Bobby's mother look up at him, suddenly interested in what he had just said. Stone gets his turn, and we learn that Bobby didn't have his hands on the gun at all. It was Jack alone who pulled the trigger. This prompts a counterattack to the prosecution in the form of the defense calling Detective Logan to the stand, which is definitely not foreseen. No. It's definitely a twist. Yes. So she asks him to disclose the nature of his conversation with Stone about the case um, once the hearing began, and the judge instructs him he has to answer. And he recounts earlier when Stone had asked him to f try to find reasons to, to let Curry go. So the crowd is like stirring in shock again, and court reconvenes a bit later, and their jury reads off not guilty to every charge besides reckless endangerment, and the courtroom is cheering, cheering for it. Yeah. Now we're outside the courtroom. The case is closed. You know, we're, we're all done. And it wraps up way quicker than I think cases do in real life. But Curry's waiting outside the courtroom. Um, he's somehow, he's not swarmed by media or his defense team. He's just by himself after this <laughs> judgment. And mm -hmm. he has this moment where he tries to take a stand and say, um, this was a warning, wasn't it? You know, that kind of attitude. And what gave them the right to use him to push their platform? And Stone says, unfortunately, you did. Not once, not twice, but three times. But three times. Ooh, got him. <laughs> yeah. Outside, uh, Curry's attorney uh, approaches, approaches Stone and says, you know, what a blunder like he had of, of not going for manslaughter when they had the chance. And they, he might have actually made his, you know, they might have actually won the case and the defendant might have actually done some time. And Stone makes a ridiculous face, and then she goes, I wonder who told a secretary in your office to call me about your conversation with Logan. And then he cavalierly walks away, saying he'll look into it. Mm-hmm. Dun-dun! And that's the end of the So episode. he basically threw the case because he didn't feel like it was the right thing. Right. He, he, he knew the... 
in his mind, it was the wrong thing to do to to convict this guy, but he had no legal way of like doing it and and saving face and and making the law work the way it did. So rather than uh, rather than pursuing him on a charge that he didn't want to, he just gives the uh, the other side information that they didn't have in order to lose, <laughs> which I I think is pretty smart. Yeah. And that's Can it. I just say so when I when I saw Angel the dock worker and I was like, oh yeah, this is a gay episode. I was so anxious that it was going to be like really, really, really offensive the whole time. Right. And, and they did better than I thought they were going to. I'll give them that. I agree because earlier when they were like making all those comments in the in the squad room and stuff and talking about right. like one in every ten, I was like, okay, I'm going to need to stop writing down every time I'm triggered by something. But I really didn't yeah. have any other times I I felt like that throughout the rest of the episode they certainly did better with this than they did the last episode where they were handling a white woman shooting black men that one they did really poorly yeah but i will say this one wasn't quite the one thing that was like a little bit annoying to me and this is something that i get it because it's the 90s and this is how all tv shows were when they represented any kind of queer character or a gay man let me say because that's really the only kind of queer character that any tv show was representing at all in that time um I do feel like it's a little bit stereotypical that the person that we found out as a surprise was gay, listened to classical music, sad music, went out all hours of the day. There was a random guy leaving his apartment the night before. They're assuming instantaneously when they find out he's gay, they changed instantly from robber drug deal to a a hookup gone bad. Like a lot of the common stereotypes that I think people uh, still, still to this day put on, on queer people. But like, especially at that time, like it's always like, Oh, you know, Fraser Crane and his brother listen to classical music. They're quote unquote fancy men, you know, like it's that yes, kind yes, of yes, thing. Yes. And it's a little annoying, but at least it's not, you know, as quite. I really thought when they were going to go to Paradise Lost, that bar, it was going to be a gay bar and it was going to be like so outrageously depicted. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? I thought it was going to be like Laganja Estrange. It was going to uh, <laughs> meet them at the door and be like, yes, God, mama. Yes, God, mama. <laughs> Yeah, no, I for sure thought, like, obviously there were so many of, like, the tropes of, like, oh, the queer character, they died, like, because queer characters are, like, the entire purpose they serve in plot lines at this point in history is, like, just to be the tragic, you know, person who had an awful life because they were so, uh, you know, tormented by their sexuality or whatever. Yeah. They, They didn't, they did some of that. And so, and I was kind of expecting it, and I was expecting so much worse. Anyway. So, are you are you ready to hear what this episode stole from? I am. I'm really curious, because I the okay. only thing I could think of is, is one particular thing, but I don't think it has anything to do with the queer community, so I wonder, I'm really curious to find out. Okay. So... This episode is based on the trial of Dr. Jack Kevorkian. I can't. I can't believe it. (laughs) Was that who you were thinking? Yes, because I'm like, mercy killing. When you hear mercy killing, that's the first name you think of, right? 100%, yes. And it's like, I don't know. I honestly, if I, when I thought about it, I was like, oh, I wonder if this is about um, Dr. Kevorkian. But then I thought, I don't really know actually that much about him other than like it was, he was, he tried to help people do assisted suicide. And that's really all I know about the situation at all. 
Um, and yeah. then I was like, oh, I wonder if he was like, was he serving like the queer community or was that like just a fictionalization? So I was like, you know what? Let's let's just see. Yeah, I think pretty much the only thing they really took was the idea of somebody helping people complete suicide. Right. To, uh, like to so, escape pain and stuff, right? Like exactly. A, yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah. So, um, so let me tell you about Dr. Jack. Let's um, get into it. So the sources that I had for this, um, PBS.org actually had this incredible timeline of Dr. Kevorkian, which was really helpful because there, there's so much like detail to his story that it was really kind of stressful to try to think about how to synthesize this in a, in a, in a logical way. So the chronology was really helpful for me. Yeah. Wikipedia, of course, and Vanity Fair and the New York Times are other sources that I got info from for this this recap of Dr. Kevorkian. Right. Okay. So Dr. Jack Kevorkian is believed to have been involved in about 130 suicides over a por- over just an eight-year period. Wow. A lot, right? Holy so, crap, yeah. So that's 16 people, over 16 people a year, so more than one a month, which is a lot. That's a lot, yeah. I didn't know it was, it so was that long either, eight years. Yeah, yeah. It's so funny because I think all of this was happening in the news when I was pretty young. Mm-hmm. And so I like knew the general plot line, which basically is all that they borrowed from for the Law and Order episode. <laughs> but I really didn't know much of the details and probably at the time didn't really understand like what what was at stake or or relevant to the arguments in, in the case. Same, same here. So he was born in 1928 in Pontiac, Michigan, and graduated high school with honors and graduated from medical school at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, in 1952 and had a specialty in pathology. Hmm, Show off. Yeah. I mean, Ann Arbor is, I know, a really good graduate program for sociology, and so I'm assuming it's a, a school with a lot of really prestigious programs. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in December of 1958, he presents a paper at a a meeting, um, I guess like a medical symposium in Washington, D.C., advocating for the medical experimentation on consenting convicts during execution. So he was basically making an argument that, hey, if a convict is about to be executed and they consent, we should be able to do medical experimentation on them. during that process, which is just kind of generally eerie to make those sorts of arguments. But he was really um, fascinated with death and like really didn't uh, essentially argued that we really didn't understand the science of death very well. Okay. So that was kind of like part of, part of his argument was that we need to do this sort of experimentation so that we can better understand the process of death. In response to that paper, the University of Michigan asks him to resign. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. So, so all this research, all this work, he probably poured yeah. over. He was probably very proud of his work, you know, showed it to his colleagues. Like, oh, I finally got it. This is it. You're fired. <laughs> yep. yep. Please leave. Oh, okay. Three years later, he publishes an article um, detailing his experiments on transfusing blood from cadavers to live patients. I couldn't really find a lot of info on like why he was saying we should be testing that. I'm assuming, again, he was a, a doctor of pathology, and so he was probably looking for, you know, I don't know, maybe the the effect of antibodies, et cetera, et cetera. Like he, um, there, 
you know, like they do blood transfusions of people who have beaten illnesses to treat people who currently, I'm talking like I'm a doctor. I did. Okay. I mean, listen, number one, you are a doctor. (laughs) Thank you. And number two, I think you're, you're really articulating it very well. So I think you should continue to speak with, uh, with conviction. (laughs) Okay. So this, these articles where he's talking about the process of transfusing blood from cadavers to people earns him the nickname of Dr. Death, which is definitely something I remember hearing during all of his trials was he was Dr. Death. They also at times referred to him as Jack the Dripper. Is that right? Hang on. Jack the Dripper? Yes. Hang on. Yes. Okay, 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 okay. All right. So here's the good news. I was correct. Uh, He did have the nickname uh, Jack the Dripper, you know, based on Jack the Ripper, because he would, some of the stuff he did was like intravenous stuff. So it was like a drip line. Uh huh. Okay. Okay. I mean, I I get it. I get it. It's just not. It's not good. It's a swing and a miss when it comes to clever nicknames. I think so. So in 1970, he becomes the chief pathologist at Saratoga General Hospital in Detroit. So he's left Ann Arbor, Michigan University, and now working for this hospital in Detroit. Mm. But he decides to quit his career in the late 1970s and travels to California. (laughs) 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 Honestly, I was like. Uh, sure that I had like clicked to another web page when I when I read this. Okay. So he travels to California and decides to invest his life savings in directing and producing a feature movie based on Handel's Messiah. Are you are you kidding? <laughs> I'm not kidding. Can you say that wait, can you say that again? He le- he goes to California to dedicate his his life and his his funding to and his what? savings to directing and producing a feature movie based on Handel's Messiah. Okay, let me take a second here. First of all, I don't even know what Handel's Messiah is. I'm context clues. You'll have to you'll have to tell me what that is if you know, but it, no matter I, what it, it, it's it is. A, <laughs> it's a song. Um I think part of like a, maybe a, a, an opera or a, like a larger composition. Oh. Mike, it's oh my god! I didn't even realize handle. Okay, so it's I thought it was like a movie or a TV show or a book or something. It's a so, okay. It's a portion yeah. of a like an a symph- symphonic orchestral orchestral song. I think so. Yes. Okay, and his his theory he wants to fund and pour all of his savings and his work into a feature film based on a. Okay, go ahead. Yep. Okay. That's right. As you may be really shocked to learn, uh, with no distributor, the movie flops. No. I can't believe it went to... Wait, he... They produced it? Apparently, he filmed it and produced it, and then nobody would, like, take it. Okay. Can we task listeners out there on... (gasps) Yes. If you can get... I, I imagine this has to be a deep web, dark web find. I really can't imagine... The only other option is, you know, download LimeWire and hope that you don't, like, kill your computer with the file how if you could find any portion of this film i i will be so so grateful honestly okay so if somebody can find us this film we will actually film a mystery science uh, theater 3000 thing with it i'm so in you didn't even have to ask me and i think you already knew that (laughs) yeah (laughs) you're like i wasn't going to (laughs) nope i was just gonna tell you we're doing it okay so uh, in the 1980s, he's still doing his doctory stuff. He begins publishing numerous articles in an obscure German medical journal on his ideas of euthanasia and ethics. In 1987, 
he advertises in a Detroit paper as a physician consultant for, quote, death counseling. Hmm. So kind of, I mean, I, I, there's people who counsel on death and the dying process, so it must not have looked too strange. Um, kind of maybe like hospice counseling or right, something. Right, okay. So in 1998, sorry, 1988, he publishes another article titled The Last Fearful Taboo, Medical Aspects of Planned Death. And there he outlines his proposed system of planned deaths in suicide clinics. So he's basically saying we should be making the process of death a an easier one. And we should have clinics where people can come in and talk about the, the dying process and get assistance in that. In 1989, okay, I just have to say throughout this whole thing, there are moments where I'm super duper on his side. And then there's moments where I'm like, you're a little zany like there's a little bit like you know <laughs> this is a okay and here's one of those a moments. little zany in 1989 he uses 30 dollars worth of scrap parts from garage sales and hardware stores and he builds a suicide machine in his kitchen table apartment okay 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 assign assignment number two for our for our <laughs> listeners um it's a two-part assignment you have you have an option Assignment yeah. number option two, a, option, option A, is you can submit this project to us. You, we want to see your <gasps> your idea of how you can use you can MacGyver together spare parts from a yard sale. It's kind of like Project Runway when they do the unconventional um, materials, materials challenge. challenge, except for, yes. for a suicide machine. So, on your kitchen table, I want you to draft up, um, you know, a rough draft of how you would make a suicide machine out of odds and ends. Maybe a slinky, maybe like a a car uh, placemat a, or something. A, you know, a really ugly floral lamp. Oh, yeah, how is that totally. involved in the process? Or like a, a deflated tube um the b is if you could find his draft of this suicide machine somewhere out there even if it's just like a technical drawing uh, that would be another another win for you i don't know what the prizes are for these things but you'll you'll get an a a plus oh you'll you'll be posted on social media like if you if you draft up some incredible drawing of uh, a machine a suicide machine that uh, is based on garage sale items we will absolutely post that on Facebook. Maybe we'll put it on a T-shirt. Oh yeah. Well, we, oh my God, we could put it on a T-shirt. We could. It'll be on. It'll for sure be on our Instagram and any any other platform we have for sure. Yeah. Um, okay. So it keeps going weirder. Oh my God. He, call, he calls the machine the Thanatron, named after Thanatos, the Greek god of nonviolent deaths. I just love the idea that it's so. It's such like. And it's like from the Jetsons, like he just slapped Tron on the end of the Greek god's name for nonviolent death. And that was his death machine. So the the Greek god's name is Thanatos? Correct. And he is the god of non, nonviolent death. Nonviolent death, Do you yes. watch Marvel movies? I, I, I was think I googled Thanos right. thinking that that's what it was based on. But of course, Thanos is inspired by Thanatos from Greek mythology. OK, I was going to say, is that also where Thanos got his name or is like, are there two like Greek deities? One's Thanos and one's Thanatos. No, because I think when I googled Thanos, um, all I got was the Marvel character. OK. All right. Interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah. now I know more about Marvel movies. I'm going to really like I'm going to uh -huh. start using that in my regular conversation. If anyone ever talks about that movie as though I knew it Thanos. from birth and I can't believe oh, no great, one knew great. it. Like, oh, you didn't know Thanatos? So his machine started with an intravenous drip of saline solution, and then the patient would press a button, starting a device which stopped the saline solution and started releasing a drug 
of thiopental, I do not know what that is, uh, with a 60-second timer, and that would put the patient into a deep coma. Hmm. Finally, uh, so the the drug would put them into a deep coma and start a 60-second timer, and within those 60 seconds, they would be in the coma, and then the timer click would uh, begin a lethal dose of potassium chloride, which would stop their heart. And so they would just basically die of a heart attack in their sleep. Wow. Um, which... I think is not unsimilar to the process of lethal injections in like federal or state executions. I seem to recall like there's the thing that kind of puts you to sleep or whatever, and then something else that stops your heart, I think. Yeah, that, so- that sounds like what I've seen, at I least mean, depicted hey, on TV. <laughs> yeah. I'm speaking with conviction, as you told me to. So <laughs> yes. As I said, the Thanatron was made from odd bits and pieces of household tools and toy parts. You can tell that I copied and pasted that thing because I would never say odd bits and pieces. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, magnets, electrical switches, and had an electric clock motor with a pulley axle and a chain and two coils acting as electric bar magnets. So it's, you can just imagine walking into somebody's house who's like, oh yeah, like I know you want to end your life. I can help with help you with that. And then you walk into their kitchen mm. where you see like slinkies coiled together shooting electricity into this machine and then probably there's like built uh, um not legos but the other ones connects connects yeah. oh my god i was thinking of a connect set i was thinking of like the connects like um little uh ferris wheel or something listen if anybody artistic out there wants to draw a uh, version of kevorkian's uh suicide machine made out of connects or build one that will absolutely be on a t-shirt or build one so he debuted this machine on an episode of the Donahue show in oh 1990. My God. Oh, you know what? I do remember scenes of him on Donahue in I like, do too. in like Dateline-y type sh- shows that go yes. over his case. I do remember scenes of him on Donahue, but I could not have told you what it was for. Like, I would have never yeah. known he had deb- debuted his machine. Yeah. So he called it dignified, humane, and painless, and the patient can do it in the comfort of their own home anytime they want. So this was uh, just on the Donahue show in 1990. Was this like a machine that patients were meant to buy and have in their own home or rent? I'm I'm not sure. I'm imagining, I, you know, a, I don't know. And I was about to start lying as though my guess made any difference in the situation. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, because if you're saying it could happen in the, in the comfort of your own home, I imagine it has to be paid for by somebody. And I imagine it's not well, a, 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 <laughs> covered by your maybe you- local insurance carrier. Maybe you rent it like a carpet cleaner at the oh, grocery store God. or something. You know, I'll, I'll have a carpet cleaner. I'll have a Stanley steamer, please. And then also, um, if I can get the Thanatron. The, the Thanatron. <laughs> yeah, and for the return oh. of the Thanatron, um, can someone come pick it up? I don't think I'm going to be av- available to bring it back. <laughs> okay. So, a few months after his appearance on The Donahue Show, he is present at the death of Janet Adkins, which, by the way, that's the phrase that you hear over and over again, is he was present at the death mm-hmm. of, because, he, again, he's not murdering these people in theory, in philosophy, I guess. Right. So a lot of the, like, kind of unproven cases, he, he is present at the death of. She was a 54-year-old uh, woman in Portland with Alzheimer's disease, and her again this is where the there's just a a dash too much of zany her death using the suicide machine was in the back of Kevorkian's 1968 Volkswagen i wouldn't want to get in the back of anybody's Volkswagen no. 
I don't want to do... Ver- There's not... Ver- oh, my gosh. Why didn't he bring the machine inside? I thought it was Why? so mobile and easy. She could do could it at home? Right. Right. Prove it. So a few days later, a judge orders him not to aid in any other suicide. And dis- district... God, that word is really hard for me to say. District court judge um, dismisses murder charges against Gavorkian in her death. Hmm. But he's not done yet. Of course. In 91, he attends the death of Marjorie uh, Wants or Wants, W-A-N-T-Z, a 58-year-old woman with pelvic pain, Sherry Miller, a 43-year-old woman with multiple sclerosis, and their deaths occurred at a rented state park cabin in Loke, Orion, Michigan. Wants, Wants died from the suicide machine's legal or lethal drugs, and Miller from carbon monoxide poisoning inhaled through a face mask. Oh, wow. Charges against him for those deaths are dismissed. Okay. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of go high level because there's many cases that he's involved in, and so it, it would be way too much to go into great de- detail about each of them. Right. And so I, I do that not to diminish the lives of the people that were involved in this, just because there's apparently 130 of them, so I need to kind of go through it in a timely manner. Yeah. In 92, uh, he's present at the death of Susan Williams, a 52-year-old woman with multiple sclerosis. Uh, She dies from carbon monoxide poisoning. And then he assists in a couple more people's deaths. And in February of 93, Hugh Gale, a 70-year-old man with emphysema and uh, congestive heart failure, dies in his Roseville home. Uh, Kevorkian is present. And prosecutors investigate after right-to-life advocates find papers that show that Kevorkian altered his account of Gale's death deleting a reference to a request by Gail to halt the procedure. Oh, no. So that one's, like, the I think kind of one of the murkiest, where I couldn't, I couldn't find a lot of great info on, like, how he altered it or what he altered. So I'm not, sh- I'm going to suspend judgment on that one because I don't have all the, all the okay, info yeah. that I would like to. Michigan Governor John Engler signs legislation banning assisted suicide and makes aiding in a suicide a four-year felony. So this is, again, kind of in direct response to Kevorkian's practices. In 93, a 30-year-old man uh, with ALS is found dead in Kevorkian's Volkswagen van. Oh, my God. Get a new car. Okay, here's another one of these moments where you're like, God, just... A little discretion and maybe just a a smidge more conservatism here, Jack. Hours after a judge orders him to stand trial in that man's death, Kevorkian's present at the death of a cancer patient named Donald O'Keefe, who is 73. Okay, you gotta... Okay, I understand. different choices here. Maybe you had a standing appointment with this guy. You You could reschedule. You can reschedule. So you get a little bit of a sense of, like, Kevorkian's maybe beliefs or like his values like it's pretty clear looking at this to me that he the fact that he did that like hours later after a judge ordered him to stand trial signifies to me that his belief in this like right to a to people having autonomy over their their lives and their death process trumps almost like everything else in the world for him Mm -hmm. like you know, the judge told me to do this, but this is is more important. This is uh, really important work that I'm doing, I right. think, is what it's like he thinks. I'd rather, like, apologize later than ask for permission yes. kind of thing. 
Exactly. But I wonder how much of it is like his his belief that this is the moral correct thing to do and how much of it has like transformed into this is something he just really enjoys doing and it gives it's him a, satisfaction yeah. to not necessarily yeah. to like hurt people but, or kill them, but like it gives him satisfaction to put people out of their misery sort of. Right, right. Like there's the, the that's like a phenomenon in serial killers, right? The angel of death folks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, who like are often doing it as in theory as a way to end suffering, but also it becomes kind of about them. And so that's one of the things that in Kevorkian's trial, folks are essentially in his various trials, you know, folks who don't believe that this is something that should be possible or done are essentially arguing that he's a serial killer because he is facilitating the deaths of all of these people. Yeah. So, over the next few months, uh, Kevorkian's periodically held in jail, and he, again, a little zany, he protests being held in jail by fasting. So he starves himself, and I think he does this a few different times while he's being held in custody. But in response to that, they they release him on bond of $100 in exchange for his vow to not assist in any more suicides until the state courts resolve the legality of his practice. And he faces over the years like various charges like this, but he's like Teflon, like nothing sticks to him. And then it all made sense to me why. Guess who his lawyer is? Oh no. I I have no idea. Jeffrey Figer, the same attorney from the Jenny Jones murder case (gasps) of Scott Amador. Do you remember watching Trial by Murder? Yes, yes. Wait, Trial by Media. Trial Trial by Media, Media. yes, yes. That lawyer, like they talk about how he's so theatrical and dramatic and like he was a theater major in in undergrad and things like that. Mm -hmm. And he's such a character. He's got so much um, charisma and is is so like always at 11. Yeah. Yes, very bombastic. So the minute I read that, I was like, of... Course, of course, because you also start start to see some interesting like theatrics in these in these cases um, in a few minutes. So then in November of 94, hours, just hours after Michigan's ban on assisted suicide expires, Kevorkian is present at the death of 72 year old Margaret Garish, um, who died from carbon monoxide poisoning in her home. She had arthritis and osteoporosis, but Kevorkian was not present when police arrived. Okay. Okay, so it's at this point there was an article in Vanity Fair that I just want to read a quote from because um, it really, I think, captures the debate around Kevorkian. Um, So they say he has been hailed as the champion of the right to die movement and denounced as a ghoulish cheerleader for suicide. Jack Kevorkian helped kill 20, helped 20 people kill themselves. And now that he has been acquitted in the assisted suicide of patient number 17, he says he has only just begun. So oh. you really get a sense of like the media, like there's a lot of people who are thinking he's this champion of, um, you know, autonomy over our process of death. And then other people just basically saying he's this morbid, maybe a serial killer who's really invested in in suicide and gets something from uh, these people dying. Oh, my gosh. Like to say that he's just getting started. And it's so funny, too, because. Like there's a like a little bit of like a uh, he would really do well if he had like a PR person for this. It's <laughs> like you know if he really believes he's doing this out of a sense of like the moral right and goodness and like furthering humanity, 
you would phrase things a little differently and be like, I believe I have a lot more good to do in the world or, or a lot more to educate people on, but instead I've only just begun does sound a lot more sinister. Maybe it was taken out of context. You know, Mm -hmm. maybe he was like, I have a lot of good to do. I'm only just begun, but it sounds very eerie in the way that the, the media was presenting it. Okay, in that same Vanity Fair article, the journalist writes that Figer, his lawyer, had insisted that no jury will ever convict Kevorkian. And polls consistently showed strong support for Kevorkian in Michigan around 60%, which actually kind of surprised me for the early, uh, late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, I, me too. His fame is nationwide. 94% of America knows who he is. And uh, the article says only the president and the first lady have higher name recognition than Kevorkian. <laughs> Sheesh. What about Colonel about Sanders and Ronald McDonald? Santa <laughs> <What> about- Claus. <laughs> uh, really, truly. State Senator John Kelly at this time says um, that you can't talk about talk against him to most people, especially if they've had someone die in horrible agony. So you do see a lot of people who are like, who have experienced the the really painful death of a loved one due to some kind of terminal illness, who are really like, actually, I'm in full support of this. I would, I wish my family had been able to, to choose the method of their dying with more grace or, you know, things like yeah. that. But Kelly does say that um, he believes that Kevorkian has the psychology of a serial killer. And in response to that, somebody asks him, like, do you think you have the psychology of a serial killer to, to Kevorkian? And he responds, I sure am. I polished off a box of Cheerios this morning. Oh, get it? my God. Cereal. Oh, I got it. <laughs> oh, I got it. So Again, just like a little bit too much. There's a little bit too much uh, cavalierness to him. Yeah, it's a little... Uh... <laughs> I don't want to say insensitive. <laughs> I mean, there's a, you right. Exactly. Like I mean, regardless if we believe that this is good or bad, somebody's life was involved. Like maybe don't make jokes about Cheerios. Right. Anyway. So in 94, December of 94, the Michigan Supreme Court upholds the constitutionality of Michigan's ban on assisted suicide and also rules assisted suicide is illegal under Michigan common law. Um, so it reinstates four cases against Kevorkian. In his opening statements, his lawyer, Jeffrey Figer, says, Humanity and compassion are on trial. You will be deciding one of the great issues in the struggle for human rights. His intent is never to kill someone, but only to reduce suffering. Kevorkian is acquitted and released. Mm. In June of 95, Kevorkian opens a suicide clinic in an office in Springfield Township, uh, Michigan, and one of his first patients is a 60-year-old woman with ALS, and a few days later, the building's owner kicks Kevorkian out, so I guess he didn't talk to him about his plans for the space when he rented it. Yeah, he's like, I want to open up a Froyo shop. <laughs> yeah. So again, um, he's in court for, I, I'm not, for some charge. There's many of these. So he arrives in court in homemade stocks with a ball and chain. So, you know, like he's in the, oh in the stocks, like uh, the piece of wood with his head uh-huh. in between. So he's, he's doing these theatrics. Oh, because he's ordered to stand trial for uh, the 91 suicides of Sherry Miller and Marjorie Wance. Okay, in October of 95, a group of doctors and medical experts announced their support for Kevorkian, saying they will uh, draw up a set of guiding principles for the merciful, dignified, medically-assisted termination of life. So there's uh, there are other doctors who are in support of this and saying, like, listen, it doesn't have to be this awful process. We can set up guidelines that will help this to always be a a humane ethical practice that people have a choice in 
In 96, the Ninth U.S. Court of Appeals, uh, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, rules that mentally incompetent, or sorry, mentally competent, terminally ill adults have constitutional right to aid in dying from doctors, healthcare workers, and family members. So this is the first time a federal appeals court endorses assisted suicide. In uh, just two days later, the jury acquits Kevorkian, acquits Kevorkian of those two deaths. I wonder if, like, is anyone arguing that the way he's going about killing these people is is painful to them in any way? Or is it, is it just an issue of, like, whether people have the right to, to do this? I think this? it's mainly just the right. Yeah. I don't think it's based on the methods Because I, I wonder, what like, I've read. these other medical professionals who are like, oh, this doesn't have to be so, you know, dark of a thing. Like, I, I mean, if he's opened up a clinic, he's having, like, patients come in. As, I mean, a patient come in. You know, I feel like that's like a step in a better direction. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Yeah. So, so just a few months later, um, he is in court again. And this time he wears a colonial costume. So he's in tights, a white powdered wig, and big buckle shoes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Because he's protesting the fact that he's being tried under under a law that is, like, centuries old. Got it. If he's uh, convicted, he would face a maximum of five years in prison and a $10,000 fine. But he's acquitted mm. again. So of course. he's like Teflon. Yeah. Okay. In November of 98, CBS airs a videotape showing Kevorkian giving a lethal injection to Thomas Uke, Y-O-U-K, who is 52, who suffered from Lou Gehrig's disease. And the fact that that was broadcast triggers this really intense debate um, in medicine, in law, in media. And he actually gets charged with first-degree murder for um, the death of Uke. Kevorkian, (laughs) here we go. Kevorkian insists on defending himself during the trial. Always a good idea. (laughs) Oh, honestly, such a good move. Really spot spot on. (laughs) He threatens to starve himself again if he's sent to jail. So the judge lets him defend himself, but orders a defense attorney to remain available at trial for counsel and information and advice. So Kevorkian, totally inexperienced in law, but, uh, you know, really given it his best go, uh, really encountered a lot of difficulty presenting his evidence and arguments. You don't say. Right. He was not able to call any witnesses to the stand as the judge did not deem the testimony of any of his witnesses relevant. Damn. He is then convicted of second degree murder and delivery of a controlled substance in the death of Uke. Um, a Michigan judge sentences him to 10 to 25 years in prison, and he is sent to prison in Coldwater, Michigan, and was repeatedly denied parole. Hmm. Okay. In, but despite being in prison, in an MS, he was interviewed by MSNBC on September 29th, 2005, and he says that if he were granted parole, he would not resume directly helping people die, and instead would just restrict himself to campaigning to have the law changed. So again, those are the moments where I'm I'm thinking it's more about him believing that this is a human right and less about him like getting any joy out yeah. of being part of the death process. Yeah, I think. Who knows? He could have been lying. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, he could just try to be um, like manipulating the system. I mean, he's he's promised yeah. before that he wouldn't do anything, and then you know exactly. Yeah, and then he did. So he was granted an early release in 2007 for good behavior, um, and spent just over eight years in prison. 
In 2010, a major motion picture um, about him was made. I did not know that. Did you ever hear about this? No. It's called um, You Don't Know Jack, and it stars Al Pacino, Susan Sarandon, and John Goodman. What? I know. I'm shocked. I've never heard of it. Me neither. I love all three of those people. Me too. Especially Susan Sarandon. Oh, I thought you were going to say especially John Goodman. I mean, I love him too, but Susan Sarandon, I just love, love, love her. In 2008, here we go. He announces plans to run for Congress. He didn't win. I know you're shocked. <laughs> I mean, listen, there have been elections that have shocked me more. Oh, God. Let's not get started on that. <laughs> um, but guess how? Guess what percent of the vote he got? Oh, uh, he lost, you said, right? He lost, So, yes. I don't know, uh, 35. 2.6%. Ah! <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just three years later, he died in the hospital from thrombosis. Eight days after his 83rd birthday. And the epitaph on Kevorkian's tombstone reads, he sacrificed himself for everyone's rights. Hmm. Okay. So this is another quote from that Vanity Fair article. Um, no, sorry, not from that Vanity Fair article. Ooh. Is it the New York Times? It is. In the New York Times article about him, uh, they, they say his critics were as impassioned as his supporters, but all generally agreed that his stubborn and often intemperate advocacy of assisted suicide helped to spur the growth of hospice care in the United States and made many doctors more sympathetic to those in severe pain and more willing to prescribe medication to relieve it. So unsurprisingly, Kevorkian leaves behind this really complicated legacy with some really viewing him as this martyr and this hero of end-of-life processes and some really still thinking that he is a serial murderer for being involved in all of these deaths. Yeah. When I wrote up this summary, I, I was, you know, he said he was involved in 130 people's deaths. I did not have all of those names and didn't really have time to tell the stories of the folks that were part uh that he assisted in their suicide yeah the way i would have liked to tell their stories but and i i even like searched some of the names to kind of hear a little bit more about the people that like really were the the drivers behind the story right and I couldn't, I couldn't find much of anything, and it was uh, frustrating me. So instead, what I will recommend is there is an article written about a professor of psychology at Cornell named Sandy Bem, B-E-M, who had Alzheimer's. And there's a New York Times article about her called The Last Day of Her Life that talks, uh, that really gives this incredible account of her diagnosis of Alzheimer's and her relationship with her family and her managing her disease and her uh, her symptoms and choosing to end her life before her disease progressed to a certain point. And it's this really incredible article because I think it touches on how complicated that is and really shows you a lot about so many sides to that, to this debate, I think. Yeah, but it's it's also just such a beautiful testament to Sandy Bem that I've read it a few times and I cry every time I read uh, it. Oh, it's you have to read it after this. Yeah. It's really I mean, if you feel like crying, but it's it's an it's just an incredible thing. And so I just want to say that each of these people who completed suicide, I'm sure had similarly beautiful and painful stories. And I wish I had gotten to tell more of them because I'm I'm sure they were really 
significant. Yeah, of course. I mean, I can't imagine. I can't imagine that anyone that was that has gotten to the point in their life where it is just so physically, emotionally unbearable to just exist at like a base level. I mean, I can't imagine that any of them were weren't going through like absolute hell that no one could even imagine for quite a long time before they came to this decision. You know, I mean, I don't, I can understand the, the side of people who say like that, that they're against this because, you know, suicide and death and all that, it's so final. It is like the most final thing, right? I get it. You know, the finality of it scares people and death scares people and, you know, all the the things to unpack about, like, what is the afterlife and, and all that. Like, I get it. But at the same time, it's almost viewed by that side as like, oh, it's a it's a it's a rash decision. You know, I don't think mm-hmm. it's it's a rash decision for people, especially for those who are in chronic pain or have a terminal illness. I can't imagine it's not all they've been thinking about every moment of every waking hour of every day. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I'm it's so it's so complicated. Uh you know, a lot of the folks who are on the side of not allowing physician assisted suicide are their argument is sort of like the slippery slope slope argument of like where do you draw the line of of when a doctor can be involved in this process? Like what if somebody in, and and the main thing people talk about is like the the division between physical illness and mental illness and like oh, should right. somebody who has like chronic depression who decides they don't want to live anymore because it's too painful for them should they have that right to uh, have physician assisted suicide and so I I get that it is incredibly complicated right um, I didn't think about that I I just I wish we could find a a better, I wish we could find an answer to a, I wish we could cure all those diseases regardless (laughs) of their physical or mental or whatever. I just, I wish for everyone that they have like dignity and autonomy in the end of their life because it's, it's uh, yeah. Anyway, I just wish for that for people. People should just have some sort of control over some aspect of their of their life right because you don't ever want your loved ones to be in pain like that's the thing is you don't want nobody wants a long protracted painful dying process so yeah so that was the story of dr jack kervorkian and the inspiration behind the third episode of law and order the reaper's helper wow Um, that was a lot that was a big undertaking for you i'm proud of it was I thank you. I was also really nervous because so much of it was this date, this date, this date, this date. I was worried it was going to be like not interesting to tell that story, but I feel I felt I felt interested in myself. <laughs> I love nothing more than to just be talking sometimes, and so uh, Amen that sounded to, for me like I was so interested in hearing what I had to say. Um, <laughs> But anyway, I do think it's such an interesting story. And I think what helped me was actually kind of bringing it back to that that article of Sandy Bem, that psychology professor, because it it reminded me that that this entire debate is centered on the people's lives, right? Yeah. And so it really is just a very fascinating story. And I think in Law and Order, the sort of I don't know that they handled like that debate very well, but they certainly, I think made 
the character, a sympathetic character. And like, you could understand his want to have that decision be his. Right. I think they, the, you know, the cops kept saying, oh, this isn't going to be a gay straight issue. We don't want it to be like that. It almost felt like the show was just equally as about the queer community as it was about assisted suicide in a way. Like, I didn't feel like it was like an assisted suicide episode necessarily as, you know, do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like they really split the attention that they put on everything. I almost wish they do another episode um, like this and they show more of the theatrical craziness of the, of the courtroom situation, you know? Yes. Like I would, I would love to see an episode where they have like the guy representing himself and he's wearing a costume that's preposterous, you know? And it almost sounds more like an episode of Allie McBeal than it does an episode of Law and Order. (laughs) Oh my God. You, uh, I never knew you were such a big Allie McBeal fan until we started podcasting together. It's been, I watched it when it first came out. So I was probably like 12, I don't know, maybe 13. And it was just that dancing baby. Right. It just entertained me from minute one. It got everybody. And I actually, I really love Calista Flockhart. Oh my God. In Brothers and Sisters, she's so good. Exactly. I mean, that's really mostly what I've seen her in is Brothers and Sisters than anything else. I think I've seen her in a movie too, but that's really where I I draw my love for her because I do love her in that show. So... This episode talked about suicide and want to make sure that folks know about the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's available 24 hours in Spanish and English. You can call them at 1-800-273-8255. It's free. It's confidential. So if you're ever in crisis or you know somebody who might be in crisis, please do not hesitate to reach out. I think they even have like chat or text if you don't want to talk to somebody over the phone. So um always know that it's there again it's 1-800-273-8255 yes thank you i I think that's beautiful i'm glad i'm glad we're sharing that so that is the end of our episode today yeah that's it another another one (laughs) another one bag (laughs) yeah 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 send us an email at um what's our email (laughs) (laughs) send us an email to rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com and yeah. as soon as we have our social media pages all set up, we'll start sharing those with you as well. But anything you send yeah. us right now, we'll, uh, we'll be sure to backlog and put into the actual uh, accounts once they open up. So, And please do not forget to design your own than- Thanatron. And uh, if you build one out of, what are they called again? Connects. Connects, yeah. Uh, <laughs> please send us a picture. Yeah, you could also use Lego Robotics if you want, but I, I would prefer Connects. Did you have those ones that were like gray and they snapped into like gray balls? Like they were um, kind of like open weave things and then there were like sticks and you could build like a, a frame. Oh, with them. yeah. What were those called? I don't re- I didn't like those as much. I Googled Connecting Toys 1990 uh-huh. and I'm getting a lot of Furbies. Do you remember? Oh my, Connecting, they're... They're being shown as uh, connecting toys, huh? Apparently. Yeah, oh, how could Let I forget Furbies? 1980s. I think they're redoing Furbies now. It's like a thing. One of my favorite memes on the internet is uh, like me drunk in the back of the Uber and it's a Furby with like one of its eyes like halfway closed. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. Oh, <laughs> uh, God. Okay. All right. Well, I'm not going to find the name of the toys. So until next time, goodbye. Yeah. Thanks for listening and uh, stay safe out there. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>